Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Would you take your Bibles and open them to the book of 2 Kings chapter 8. 2 Kings chapter 8, as we're walking alongside the life of the prophet Elisha, we're learning directly from his life. We are seeing God use him in dramatic, powerful ways, but we can't forget the backdrop. The nation of Israel is going through, you know, in the divided kingdom, Israel and Judah, going through a series of kings, most of them bad. And the time of the children of Israel, the the people of God turning their back on God toward idolatry, to, to worshiping false gods, to turning their back on the goodness and the graciousness of God. You know, anytime we're reading that, we're kind of thinking, well, I don't think I'd ever do that. But the longer you're in a community of believers, the more and more you see it. It's just one more temptation or one more chance and that choice to turn your back on. But you imagine a nation, and it doesn't take much to imagine a nation that's turned their back on God. We live in a nation that's turned their back on God in so many ways. Sure, God has believers spread out in different facets of our culture. But as a nation, unbelief has invaded the land. And it started with the leaders, the kings. And so what does God do? when a people turn their back on him? And what does God do when a family turns their back on him? And what does God do when a person, a man, a woman, turns their back on God? He disciplines them. Let let me read to you and jot it down in Hebrews chapter 12. I'm gonna read to you from the New Living Translation, beginning in verse seven, it says, as you endured this divine discipline, in the old king, or the new King James, it's chastening. So we don't usually use that word much anymore. It's a great way of saying, saying it, divine discipline. Remember, as you're going through divine discipline, that God is treating you as his own children. Whoever heard of a child who was never disciplined? If God doesn't discipline you as he does all of his children, it means that you're illegitimate and you're not really his children after all. Since we respect our earthly fathers who disciplined us, Should we not all the more cheerfully submit to the discipline of our heavenly Father and live forever? For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years, doing the best that they knew how. But God's discipline is always right and good for us because it means we will share in his holiness. Let me repeat that. God's discipline is always right and good for us because it means that we'll share in his holiness. Verse 11. No discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. It is painful. Is there an amen to that? Right here it's an exclamation point, but that really is an amen. No discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. But afterward, there'll be a quiet harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. Divine discipline equals the training of God. And the end result is a life that's pleasing to God. And one of the tools of God's divine discipline in the nation of Israel that we see him use more than one time is famine. 
Now, don't think of famine just as a lack of food, although it is. For an ancient country to experience famine, especially in the area of Israel, being agrarian and living off the land, a famine would mean not only a lack of food, but it would be a severe blow to the economy. What you could equate it today as a stock market crash, and then in in our day of age, you would say the economy has tanked and there's also no food. It would hit every facet of life. And they would then have a choice to look around or to look up. And how God often brings us to places where we either choose to look around or to look up. And in this case, by the time we come to chapter 8, the famine was about three and a half years and caused great distress. And yet in a moment, God intervenes and it ended. And now we learn, now coming to chapter 8, of another famine coming, verse 1. It says, Elisha spoke to the woman whose son he had restored to life, saying, Arise and go, you and your household, and and sojourn wherever you can sojourn, for the Lord has called for a famine. Furthermore, it will come upon the land for seven years. So the woman arose and did according to the saying of the man of God, and she went with her own household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. It came to pass at the end of seven years that the woman returned from the land of the Philistines and she went to make an appeal to the king for her house and for her land. Then the king talked with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Tell me, please, all the great things Elisha has done. And now it happened, as he was telling the king how he had restored the dead to life, that there was the woman whose son he had restored to life, appealing to the king for her house and for her land. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, this is the woman, and this is her son, whom Elisha restored to life. And the king asked the woman and told him, So the king appointed a certain officer for her, saying, Restore all that was hers and all the proceeds of the field from the day that she left the land until now. Now, jot it down. We aren't going to go there. But back in chapter 4, beginning in around verse 8, Elisha met this woman and restored life to her son. Now, this is the same woman coming now a few chapters later, and she's being divinely warned by Elisha of another famine that's going to hit the land. And he gives her advice on how to handle it. And the advice that he gives her is practical, not necessarily spiritual in the sense of, of, I mean, everything that we do for God is spiritual, but the advice that he gives is practical and that there's a famine coming, and what he tells her is, he doesn't offer up a miracle to provide food for her, doesn't tell her to go gather all the jars and get the wine and make bread. He doesn't give all of these spiritual, miraculous things. He gives her instruction. What does he say? You should leave the land and go find a place where there's food. That's what he tells her. Go sojourn where you can sojourn where there's food because there's a famine coming here. Find a solution. Go live somewhere else. And we're reminded that in serving God, we can't always predict how God is going to work. Even as we heard during our time of worship, we, we, we aren't able to limit God. Even though we do place these artificial limits on him, he's not limited by our limitations. And we can't predict how he's going to work. Or we might say today that you can't put God in a box or box him in so that this is the only way that he can work and this is the only thing that he can do and there's a famine in the land so God, you must provide a miracle. Food needs to show up in my cupboard. 
Instead, the advice was you need to go live somewhere else and go there for a time. And remember the last time we were together, we learned the difference between directive prayers and prayers of submission. Directive prayers come when we've already made up our mind how we want God to work. And so we've already figured out the solution. We've already figured out how it's going to be. I'm going to apply for this job, and then we're going to move here, and we're going to do this, and this is how it's going to So God just bless my plans. And we start to direct God on how he's supposed to work and how he's going to work it out. And then when he doesn't act and answer that way, almost immediately we turn on God and blame him for not answering the way we told him to and not doing things the way we told him to instead of instead of laying the situation before God and trusting him with the outcome. Just saying, God, this is the problem, you know it. What is it that you want to do? Instead of directing God in our prayers, it's much better to submit to God in our prayer. Because directing God in our prayer is not going to work. It isn't going to get, to get you and me to the place where we really want to go, and that is to accomplish the will of God. It's a frustrating thing to try to figure God out. I mean, if you think about it, if I passed out little pieces of paper before service today and I said, okay, guys, uh, here's the question. For seven years, there's going to be a famine in the land. What is God's solution? And I don't just mean for Elisha. Let's say it's for us. God gave us a revelation that there's going to be seven years of difficulty in our country. And I say, so what's God going to do? I would imagine that what was written on, these, on those pieces of paper would vary greatly. Because some of them would be what you want to happen. Some of them would be out of prayer. Some would be, I have no idea what God's. And there would, some would overlap, but many of them, there would be so varied responses. And the good thing is, is that we can take all of those varied responses and lay them before God and say, God, I trust you how you're going to work it out. I trust you in what you want to do. Why doesn't God just spell out things for us? Why doesn't he just lay out our lives? Because there's a lot of us that would really love to know what the next five years will bring. Some of, some of you listening, you go, five years? Ed, I'd really like to know what the next five days will bring, the next five hours would bring, because I've got this situation here, and I've got this difficulty over there, and I've got this long-term goal and range, and I, I'd really like to know. And we wonder sometimes, why wouldn't God just spell it out for us? He loves us. He cares for us. I think even as parents, there are times where we would love to spell it out for our kids so they'd have a little bit of comfort of what's going to be in the future and what would be up ahead. But I believe God in his sovereignty and his desire to lead us by faith doesn't spell things out to us because he wants us to learn to live a life of dependence. What kind of dependence would come if God told us what's going to happen in the next five years? We just anticipate it. We just expect it. And maybe God say, well, you know, nothing significant is going to happen in the year 2019. So what would we do? Write out 2019. And we'd be anticipating, what, 2020. I mean, it would even be great to know that God's saying, really? God, you're giving me a five-year plan, so there's going to be five years. And so what would you do? You'd plan things out for five years. Instead of saying, God, what is it today? And learning to depend upon him when I don't see clearly, when I'm not sure when I don't understand what the future might hold. God enjoys relationship with his people, with his kids, not a religious activity. 
So many would step out in a midweek Bible study because you're taking the next step away from just being church attenders, but you are coming to that place of sensing a hunger in your life for more. What does the Bible say? And so you're saying, I'll give up whatever's on television tonight. I'll give up whatever sleep I would anticipate. I'll give up whatever it is that you would sacrifice to say on Wednesday night. Because I'm sure if you talk to some of your friends, you go, what are you doing on Wednesday night? I'm going to church. You're doing what? I mean, because we're heading out over here and we're playing softball over there and we've got this going and there's overtime, man. There's another shift that you can say, no, no, I want to grow. I'm not just wanting to be a church attender. As good as that might be, I mean, it's better to attend church and to be in a Bible study and to be in the atmosphere of worship than so many other places. But many of you, you have found out by now that is not the essence of your relationship with God any more than just showing up at home an hour a week would really make that house a home in your life. Nobody really does that. In a family, we spend time with one another. We grow with one another. We we go through difficulties together. We work out issues together. And, And as we step out on a Wednesday night, it's just so glorious. Or listening to a radio station. You know, of all the options that you could listen to, you go, I think I need to hear the word of God. I don't need to hear music today as good as it is. I definitely never need to hear country music, so that's not even an option. I just need the Word of God. I I just need, you know, even if the Word of God is taught to me in a country twang, it won't come from me, but I'm sure somebody can. You know, Bill Gim's on from Texas at night, so if you stay up late enough, you'll get a Texas twang for Pastor Bill. But I just need God. I don't want just His Word. And I don't want just to be in a church. And I just don't want to be, I want my life to reflect a relationship with God. And so in God's part, not only does he bring divine discipline and training, but he also says, I'm not going to reveal the entirety of your life to you. Instead, I want you to depend upon me daily. Or in some cases, moment by moment. As I prayed earlier, Some of you have these questions on your heart and your mind, and you keep asking them. And the answer hasn't come for five days, five weeks, five months, five years. And, And you keep asking them, but here's the danger. Here's the danger. When the answer comes, will you still ask? When the answer comes... When God finally settles and reveals to you what the issue is here and you've been desperate and you're knocking like the persistent widow and you're not going to leave until you get an answer. So you're pressing in and you're digging deep and then when God finally gives you the answer, is that it? Or will it take another crisis, another difficulty? Or are you learning that it's good to come to him with all things? That we're to pray, be anxious for nothing but in all things. By prayer and supplication, we make our requests be made known to God. God's teaching us these things. And over time, we're learning them. Jot it down in Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 3. Someone once referred to this as God's calling card. Jeremiah 333. Call to me, God says, and I'll answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. Call unto me, God says, and I'll answer you. And so what does Elisha tell her? He says, go find a place to live until the famine is old, over. And she comes back after the famine and she requests that her land be restored to her. And so she comes to the king and has an audience with the king. She wants 
her land. And notice Gehazi shows up. The, this is Elisha's servant. This is the one that he prayed for that his eyes would be opened, that he'd see the spiritual realm. And here he is in proximity with the king and, and he's there to give a good word. And he reminds the king about the miracle of God done in the, her life with her son. And it moved the king to give her the request, give her her land back. And he arranges it by the time we get to verse six. And you know, the king didn't have to do this. He didn't have to. Uh, he, could, he was the sovereign king. He could make whatever decision he wanted to make. And it, it reminded me at times in our lives that we have, sometimes we have leaders and bosses and authorities over us that we don't really like and we don't really agree much with. And I'm not asking for an amen. I don't want you to get in trouble. But we've all worked with people, we've all had people in our life, maybe within, even within ministry, where God has used a leader that, that we may not agree with or we didn't like, but God's using that leader to hone us and to, to cause us to deeper dependence upon Him. And we wonder, we wonder if we'll ever have favor with them. If we'll ever get a good word or an encouragement from them, let this little section of scripture encourage you, the king didn't have to do this, but God gave her favor. He didn't have to do this at all, but God gave her favor, which reminded me of this proverb. I want you to see this, so turn over to Proverbs 21, especially as this might resonate with your heart. You go, yeah, I'm working for a guy right now, or I'm working for a gal right now, and I just never seem to have any favor with them. Turn over to Proverbs 21.1, because this is just one of those verses you want to hold on to. One of those connecting points. And we see it perfectly lived out with this woman in this section of 2 Kings 8. It says, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, and like rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. In the New Living Translation, it says, the king's heart's like a stream of water directed by the Lord, and he turns it wherever he pleases. And so as you're praying for your boss, you're praying for that authority, that person in authority over you, praying for the authorities in life, you know, there's just this ever-increasing pressure in our culture to turn on authority. And it's much better just to know that their hearts are in the hands of the Lord and pray for them. And as you pray for them, God's going to work in you. Now, come back to me in, with me to 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 7. Elisha heads to Damascus, uh, just living his life in the Lord. Notice verse 7. Then Elisha went to Damascus, and Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, was sick, and it was told him, saying, the man, have, have, the man of God has come here. Remember, Elisha was known as what? A man of God. He is well known, even to the king in Syria. He's the man of God. Now, they're familiar with him. They're familiar with him because he's the guy, remember, that's known not only as the man of God, but he's the guy that is known as the person that knows even the things they whisper in their bedrooms on behalf of God. He's the one, Elisha, this man of God, that God used to stop the ambushes to protect the nation. So he's known all right. And I wonder if you're known. I wonder if you're known of a man, as a man of God, as a woman of God. I wonder if that's the top designation that somebody has when they think of you. That you're the man of God. 
You're the one that hears from God. You're the one that talks about God. Now, you could be known as a man of God in not a very kind way. You're, I remember when I first got saved, they, they were calling me Bible boy. That, that was their title for me because now all of a sudden, I had completely transformed overnight. And I was carrying, a, I remember this, this one time, and I won't forget, I was, walking my, I was walking to my car after a shift, and one of the guys I work with, he came over and knocked my Bible out of my hand. He said, what are you doing, Bible boy? And I'm like, oh boy. <laughs> Bible boy, I mean, praise God for the power of the Holy Spirit, because that dude really ticked me off. And I was really close to the old Ed back then. Like, I was much closer there than I am today. Although, haven't you found maybe not with me, but with yourself, then in an instant, you can be the old you, the flesh. So quick, just so quick. And you're like, what has happened to me? Well, the Lord's reminding you that daily sufficient grace is what we need. His grace is sufficient. Not the years that we've been walking with the Lord. Well, you know what? I've been walking with Jesus for 30 years, and in one second, the old you can come back. And I wonder if you know, and if you're known as a man of God and as a woman of God, whether positive or negative. Notice verse eight. The king said to Haziel, take a present in your hand and go meet the man of God and inquire of the Lord by him saying, shall I recover from this disease? So Haziel, verse nine, went to meet him and took a present with him of every good thing of Damascus, 40 camel loads. And he came and stood before him and said, your son Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, has sent me to you saying, shall I recover from this disease? And Elisha said to him, go, say to him, you shall certainly recover. However, the Lord has shown me that he will really die. Then he set his countenance in a stare until he was ashamed and the man of God wept. And Haziel said, why is my Lord weeping? And he answered, because I know the evil that you will do to the children of Israel. Their strongholds you will set on fire. Their young men you will kill with the sword. And you will dash their children and rip open their women with child. So Haziel said, but what is your servant, a dog, that he should do this gross thing? And Elisha answered, the Lord has shown me that you will become king over Israel, or over Syria. And he departed from Elisha and said, came to his master and said to him, what did Elisha say to you? And he answered, he told me that you will surely recover. But it happened on the next day that he took a thick cloth, dipped it in water, and spread it over his face so that he died. And Haziel reigned in his place. So Elisha heads to Damascus, which is an act of bravery and courage. Why? Because he was known as a man of God. This is the guy that that told of all the ambushes and stopped the victory of Syria and gave victory to the children of Israel. So for him to go to Damascus was a brave thing. It took a lot of courage to go into the enemy's camp this way. And I was thinking about our own lives and the places that God takes us. We must go where God wants us to go in the strength of the Lord. We must do what God's called us to do in the strength of the Lord. I mean, to go to Damascus, we might respond and go, well, that doesn't make any sense. But if God has called you to Damascus, you need to go in the strength of the Lord because he's already gone before you. And when he's asked, you know, this whole thing is all set up for him to be there. And, and I was thinking too, you know, the 99.9% of ministry is just showing up and just being there. You're not going to be used in an incredible way if you don't show up where God wants you to show up. 
if you're not there, if you're not in proximity to where God wants you. Just being here is going to open up the opportunity for you to be used of God right here tonight. Not tomorrow, next week, although it could be a setup, but Elisha had to be in proximity so Haziel, in talking to his king at just the right timing, would then find him, and he's really close to be found because he's, at, he's on his way to Damascus, and the question all lines up, and for everything to be done here from verse 7 to verse 15 required, required Elisha to be obedient to go to a place that you might say, why are you going there? And why would you do that? But God, that's where God wanted him. And he's asked about, and he says, yeah, he's going to recover, but he's going to die. And he was just given tremendous insight. He was a man that could handle that. And then he began to weep because God also revealed to him that Haziel would be the next king of Syria and do great damage to the children of Israel. Perhaps already seeing in the spirit his murderous heart, he says in verse 12, because I know the evil that you will do to the children of Israel. And he talks about all the wickedness that's going to happen. In Haziel, he got defensive in verse 13. And you really know that you've touched a nerve in someone's life by the level of defensiveness they give you. Or for you and me. The more defensive we are, most likely the message really hit home. You know, my pastor used to say that when you throw a rock in a pack of dogs, the one that got hit is the one that yelps. And isn't it true, as God throws out his word among us, the one that got hit by his word, especially in a convicting way, is the one that yelps. And the Holy Spirit's wanting to provoke a response from us. He's wanting us to not be in the, just the continued status quo. He's not wanting us just to be satisfied that our sins are forgiven and that we're going to heaven, but rather he wants us to be walking in the spirit, anticipating what new thing does he have for us? What new direction? Is it a step of faith to go? Then take a step of faith to go. Is it a step of faith to stay? Then take the step of faith to stay. But by all means, seek God and be obedient. Match, that, your, match the word of God with obedience to God. You know, when the human heart is set on doing evil, it will invent all sorts of excuses and justifications to make it happen. When your heart and my heart is set to do evil and has made up our mind to sin, you'll have all kinds of reasons. You'll talk yourself into it. You will, what the Bible speaks of, sear your own conscience with a hot iron so you don't feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit anymore, but instead you feel your own justifications. Oh, it's not that bad. Oh, God just wants me to be happy. Oh, you don't understand. Oh, you, who am I? Who, why would you say that to me as a dog? You, you, all kinds of things. It's in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 11, listen. It says, Because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. It's another aspect. Let me paraphrase that for you and for us. Because you aren't immediately judged by God for your sin, or because you think you've gotten away with it, or because you don't feel bad about it, or any other of a series of justifications, because the sowing and reaping hasn't happened immediately, 
You know, you sow, and then you go, well, you know, the Bible says if I sow to the flesh, I'll reap corruption, but I don't think I'm reaping any corruption. I don't feel it. Everything seems fine. Because of that timing, there's a distance between what you've done and the consequence. Because of that, your heart only gets more set to continue to do evil, not less. It only burns into your mind. It's another aspect of burning into your heart and mind to continue on this path. The Bible says that the Bible describes it, the sons of the, the, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and his days are prolonged, yet I surely know that it will be well with those who fear God and who fear before him. That's Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 11 and 12. And it's these, this is one of those verses that on the front page of my Bible I wrote just one I never wanted to forget. You know how you're looking up a verse and you can't remember the address? This is one of those verses early on in my walk that I knew I couldn't forget. It was so crystal clear for my life that if I didn't grasp this truth, it would come out a thousand times in my life. Devastatingly difficult, knowing how I love to justify things and I love to, to answer things with great and swelling answers in my heart when I've already made up my mind to do evil and just pushing the Spirit of God away. And for Christians, I've seen all sorts of Bible verses twisted. I've heard all kinds of weird thoughts, impressions. Well, you know, this is what the Bible says and this is what the Bible says. I've heard, I can't say I've heard it all because I've found just in the last couple of years, um, I've just seen more and more hardness. And it could be that I'm just recognizing it now, but I don't think so. I think as we're growing later and later in the last days, hearts are growing harder and harder, especially those that profess to know God and love God. That it's one thing to to stumble into sin, but it's another thing to sit with a pastor and look him in the eye and say, I'm going to do it no matter what you say. I'm just seeing more and more of that. And you're in a place where you're like, no, don't do that. No, this is what the Bible says. Just, just submit your emotions right now to the scriptures. Just, just ride this out. Don't make it worse by sinning willfully against God. And what is in me is in all of us. It's our flesh that truly wants to accomplish what we believe the will of God is in our own. We're not, we're not God. God's given us direction for our lives. He's revealed to us what's good for us and what not, what's not good for us. And he doesn't want us living in some legalistic, crazy way of just rules and regulations. He wants us living in wisdom, in relationship with him. Now, notice. Now, in the fifth year, in verse 16, of Joram, the son of Ahab, the king of Israel, Jehoshaphat, having been king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, began to reign as the king of Judah. He was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. And he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, just as the house of Ahab had done. For the daughter of Ahab was his wife. Whoa. The daughter of Ahab was his wife, which most likely means her mom was named. So she, this dude hooked up with Jezebel's daughter. 
And I wonder what Ahab and Jezebel produced <laughs> in their home. You're going to find out in a moment. Uh, he says that he married the daughter of Ahab and he did evil in the sight of the Lord, verse 19. Yet the Lord would not destroy Judah for the sake of his servant David, as he promised him a lamp to him and his sons forever. In his days, Edom revolted against Judah's authority and made a king over themselves. So Joram went to Zair and all his chariots with him, and he rose by night and attacked the Edomites who had surrounded him and the captains of the chariots, but his people fled to the tents. Thus Edom has been in revolt against Judah's authority to this day, and Libna revolted at that time. Now the rest of the acts of Joram and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Joram rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. Then Ahaziah, his son, reigned in his place. So Jehoram, or you know, sometimes he's referred to as Jehoram and Joram. Uh, it gets confusing at times. You just got to jot a note down when their names are mentioned. But he's a disaster as a spiritual leader. He brought sin and apostasy and more evil into the nation of Israel as he followed Ahab's leadership and example. Now, of course, the main reason that he's given here cannot be overlooked. And the main reason that God wants us to see here is that he married the daughter of Ahab. He married the daughter of Ahab. This is something that the Bible calls, if you're taking notes, you should jot it down, especially if you're single. This is the Bible calls unequally yoked. It's actually something that God warns against and forbids. You can jot it down in 2 Corinthians. Why don't we just turn there just to get the concept from the New Testament. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 11. We have looked at this in depth when we went through 2 Corinthians, so I'm not going to do a complete full study on it, but I do want to touch on this because Jor- Joram's, his total failure was directly related to who he married. And he married willingly. Now remember, because I know some of you listening in are unequally yoked because when you got married, you were both unbelievers. And Along the way, you got saved and your spouse hasn't got saved. And don't forget this word. Don't ever stop using this word. Always, whenever you're talking about your spouse, whenever you're praying about your unsaved spouse, don't ever neglect using this word. They aren't saved yet. Trusting God for their lives. Not saved yet. That's not here. He willingly walked into being unequally yoked. This is willing had the choice and made it anyway. So notice in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. O Corinthians, we've spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. You're not restricted by us, but you're restricted by your own affections. He's saying, what I'm about to share with you, it's not, we're not laying some trip on you. You're laying a trip on yourself by your sinful affections. Now in return for the same, I'm going to speak to children, but you also be open. And verse 14 couldn't be more clearer in the English language. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. So let's just take a little quiz, because I like to pop a quiz on you every once in a while. Is it ever okay to be unequally yoked with an unbeliever? If anyone answered yes, this was a pass or fail. So no ABC. It was either A or F. 
This is just one of those places that couldn't be more crystal clear. But you know what happens? What happens is impatience and emotions and justification. And the Bible says, don't do it. And he gives the reason. What fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? And what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I'll dwell in them and I'll walk among them. I'll be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them, saith the Lord. Be separate. Don't touch what's unclean. I'll be a dad to you. You shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Whether it's a spiritually based, unequally yoked relationship or practically based, being unequally yoked together with unbelievers is sinful, it's hurtful, and can make your life so much more difficult than it is right now. You think your life is difficult now? Disobey this command, and it'll get worse. We can be unequally yoked in marriage, in business, in partnerships, sometimes even in friendships. Evil company corrupts good habits, and how careful we need to be. This isn't a prohibition against having friends that aren't saved at all. We should have a a wide variety of people in our lives that we work with, that we uh, interact with, that we are the salt and light of the earth. We're not, this isn't a prohibition to not have relationships outside the body of Christ. Of course, how how will anyone hear of the gospel if you don't connect with them? That's not what he's saying here. He's speaking of a relationship where you connect and you yoke together. It's a a word that's used of a a wooden contraption that was used to bring two animals together so they could work together in the fields. And you would want to equally yoke the animals. If you were putting an ox in one side of the circle, then you would want an ox on the other side of the same size and temperament. You wouldn't want a big strong ox on the left side and some puny little one on the right side because that would be unequally yoked. You wouldn't want to put a donkey on one side and have him go this way and then an ox on the other side go that way. You want to be equally yoked where you're moving in the same direction with the same love and and when it comes to our relationship with God, the same love of God. It's easy to be deceived and self-deceived in this area of our lives because we tend to think that we're stronger than we really are. And we think we have more strength against the onslaught of temptation and evil influences, so we tend to take our chances instead of being patient in the Holy Spirit. And more influence by the world and its system will take its toll. It will take its toll on what you watch and what you listen to, what you present yourself to, who you hang out with. It will take its toll. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33, it says, Don't be fooled by those who say such things, for bad company corrupts good character. So just to those that are single today, as a pastor, representing the most high, holy, and righteous God, as a fellow believer, as a friend, and just someone that's walking the walk with Jesus with you, single man, single woman, do not... Marry an unbeliever. That is the word of the Lord for you. And for you listening to me right now, you have been duly warned by the word of God. Don't marry an unbeliever. Marriage is not a missionary endeavor. Where, Ed, don't worry about it. God's put me in this life because 
but through me, I'm going to save him. You say, Ed, the vision of the church is when disciples sinned, and I think God sent me into their life. He may have sent you into their life, but not to marry them as an unbeliever. And this is where all the justifications come in, all the reasonings, and it's like, oh, Ed, man, like, like if, if I limit my chances to just believers, I don't know, there's not many out there. And we find all these reasons. I would even say this. I see this much more with ladies. That's why I'm going to emphasize it with you ladies. But men, you can also take it to heart. But especially you women. Having a daughter myself. Don't you Christian ladies marry some wishy-washy nominal man that says he walks with Jesus, but he really doesn't. Where you're the lead in the relationship where you're the one that talks about spiritual things, where you're the one that convinces him, and finally, in your relationship, you finally get him to come to church, and you think that is the best thing that's ever happened in this world. It might be the best thing that ever happened in that guy's world, but you are deceived. You don't need a wishy-washy guy where you lead. You need a man of God that will lead you and be the spiritual, biblical covering in your life that will lead you to the Lord. Because the Bible says that you, ladies, are the weaker vessel. Now, don't be offended at what the Bible says because God is not speaking like the world says, like you're somehow less than a man, that you're somehow more, uh, you know, you, you, you are not as important as men or not as smart. That is not in any way what God says. He is recognizing and revealing to us his order. And so while I've spoken to the ladies, men, you are the spiritual head of your home, of any relationship, and you must continue to be the godly, strong leader that God has made you. And so if you're a wishy-washy guy right now, stop it. That's my counsel to you. Stop it. (laughs) Rise up, man, and be the man that God wants you to be. Be the godly man that God wants you to be. Be the one that God has made you. You say, oh, you don't understand, Ed. You don't understand. Even if I don't understand, I don't need to understand your situation in order to know what the Bible says. That's just another excuse, isn't it? Well, Ed, you just don't know my situation. You don't know how I feel. You don't know. Who cares what I know? What does the Bible say? I don't have to know every situation of every person I've ever met my whole entire life in order to give you counsel what the Bible says. Because the Bible is written by the God who knows you. And so you go, oh God, you don't understand. And you can hear God go, I don't understand. I know more about you than you know yourself. If you'll just turn to me and call upon me, he says, Jeremiah 33, I'll answer you says the Lord. And so what's the downfall of this king? He married Ahab's daughter. And isn't that what happened with Solomon? Many years prior, King Solomon, you know, he made a few mistakes. (laughs) First of all, he married many wives. And it was the cultural norm of the day. It was what a king did to make treaties with other nations. But God said, don't do it. And what's the end result of Solomon? It says his wives turned his heart away from the Lord. That's just the way it is. Don't do it. 
you hold out for that godly man and that godly woman, someone that's on fire, loves God. You can't just dismiss this truth without its consequences affecting you. It was the great teacher Henry Ironside that said this, and I quote, if you're a child of God and marry a child of the devil, you are sure to have trouble with your father-in-law. <laughs> Do I need to read that a second time? <laughs> if you're a child of God and marry a child of the devil, you're gonna have trouble with your father-in-law because you've given him a foothold in your life. That's just the way it is. That's a guarantee. If, you, if you're a believer and you marry an unbeliever, you're opening the door to all sorts of troubles, disagreements, and difficulties. And if you doubt me, I say this every time this topic comes up, if you doubt me, I know a few relationships in the church that are unequally yoked because they were married as unbelievers and one got saved. And I'm sure if you don't think the word of God's convinced you or that my exhortation has convinced you, they'll talk to you and just give you a day of their life or maybe a week of their life and would stir up in you a holy fear that while you're on this side as a believer that you obey God. He's a total failure and certainly marrying Ahab's daughter was not a help to him. Let's close up in verse 25. In the twelfth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, the king of Israel, Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaziah was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Athaliah, the granddaughter of Omri, the king of Israel. And he walked in the way of the house of Ahab, did evil in the sight of the Lord, as the house of Ahab had done. He was the son-in-law of the house of Ahab. Now he went with Joram, the son of Ahab, to war against Haziel, the king of Syria, at Ramoth-Gilead, and the Syrians wounded Joram. And King Joram went back to Jezreel to recover from the wounds which the Syrians had inflicted on him at Ramah when he fought against Haziel, king of Syria. And Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, went down to see Joram, the son of Ahab, in Jezreel because he was sick. Ahab too had two sons, Ahaziah and Jehoram, who were hor- both horrible kings. Jehoshaphat had a son and grandson named Jehoram and Ahaziah, who were also kings reigning over the people. So Joram, the king of Israel, and Ahaziah, the king of Judah, joined together to fight this new Syrian king, which will lead us into chapter 9, as we get to next time. But one thing we can't miss and we can't overlook is God's continual faithfulness to his people, even in their rebellion and sin, which so encouraged me uh, as, I, as we were instructed by Pastor Keegan today on our prayer points to just remember the faithfulness of God. Remember an instance of the faithfulness of God. Because in our Bible study today, we're reminded of God's faithfulness. We, we must never forget that while all chaos and craziness is happening, that God is still on his throne, judging sin and fulfilling his word. And no matter what occurs in history, God is in control. He knows all things. He can do all things. He's present everywhere. He's working out his will. He's a holy God that is long-suffering with sinners, but eventually brings judgment on those who disobey him. Don't ever mistake the, the patience of God with the approval of God when it comes to sin. Don't ever think because something didn't, you didn't experience the judgment right away that God is okay with what you're doing. He's not. What's true in the past is true in the present. And no matter what occurs in our lives, God is in control. We can trust him. 
He knows all things, can do all things. He's present everywhere and is working out his will in our lives. He's a holy God who's long-suffering with you and with me, but eventually will bring judgment into our lives through the consequences of our sinful decisions if we choose to disobey him. And that's really the thing that we keep reading with the kings. He's so faithful. Anyone that will turn to him, he'll meet him there. Anyone. Why? Because he loves his people. You think, why wouldn't he just take out these kings? Well, he loves his people. He loves his people that God will continue to lead and guide those that turn to him. And even if you turn away from him, as we will finish up this weekend, our final, I I added one more study to our series on backsliding. As we finish up, he will be patient and receive you when you return. He will be patient and receive you. The question is this, in what kind of bad shape will you be when you return? He'll receive you. Even if you're beaten up and bloodied and bruised, he'll receive you. You know, on my flight back recently from Thailand, you know, Thailand's known for their jujitsu stuff. So there was definitely a dude sitting right behind me that was doing some jujitsu, or actually somebody was doing some jujitsu on him. And he was all beat up and banged up, you know, sitting in the seat right behind me. And it just reminded me, man, you and I will get really beat up and banged up by the jujitsu of sin. It will just kick your tail. You think you can, and sin is like, and it just, boom, and he was all jacked up. You know, you know how we, your, your ears get when you just get bam, bam, pummeled on your ears. He had this big old, and he was a big dude, so I still wouldn't mess with him. I didn't turn around and go, dude, who jacked you up? I just made observations while he was sleeping. All right, he, was, he slept most of the flight. I was just like, well, I just remember, th- I, just, I didn't know I was going to use that tonight, but just thinking, I remember registering, this dude got jacked up. And he's pretty strong, so somebody must have been much more stronger than him to use their juju on him, whatever, whatever you do. So that's real popular there. And, and isn't it true? We all bear the scars of our stupid, sinful decisions. And yet, like this brother, this guy that was sitting behind me, we get stitched up, we get bandaged up, eventually what we get healed up, and then we get back into the fight that we should be in. We don't wrestle against flesh or blood, but against principalities and powers against those things that rage against our minds, that our battle isn't with one another physically. It's in the spiritual realm, spiritually. Uh, The demonic realm, the things that rise itself against the knowledge of God, that God would do that work in us so we don't mess around. We don't jump into the ring with sin. We'll kick our tail every time. So Father, we just know that that, um, you are gracious to us and we acknowledge that even as we were praying earlier. We acknowledge your mercy in our lives and your goodness. We acknowledge your love and your kindness. We acknowledge, God, your faithfulness to us. And, and we also acknowledge that we all have scars and wounds because of our own sinful decisions. And maybe someone's here tonight that they walked in with in the midst of sinful decision and they need to be rescued. They need to be delivered from themselves. They don't have a handle on it. They don't have control over it. What they've sown will reap corruption. And yet, God, they're still not yet fully convinced. And maybe there's an unequally yoked 
direction happening right now. And maybe it just starts with a little affection. And there's a single gal, a single guy here tonight that's like, hey, I'm going to move in this direction. And, and I see this, and I see this, and I see this, but it's okay, it's okay, it'll change, it'll change. If I could just get him to church, if I could just get him, if I could just get her, when all the while, Lord, you don't want us to marry the daughter of Ahab or the, the son of Ahab. You want us to wait for your perfect will. It could be a business arrangement. It could be a friendship, Lord, that was once very fruitful, but because of changes in the person, it's become unfruitful. They're not talking about the things of the Lord anymore. They're just gossiping, tearing down a brother, tearing down a sister, and talking about things that don't edify, don't build up. God, would you give us wisdom on how to be salt and light in this world? And just this topic of unequally yoked, God, that, that you'd protect us. Even as a church, we don't want to be unequally yoked with the world and the world's methodology. We don't want to water down the Bible or abandon the verse-by-verse teaching in order to accomplish whatever people think they want to accomplish. But no matter what our critics might say or what people might, you know, not enjoy the Bible or whatever, we, won't, we, we just pray that we will not ever veer away from daily, weekly, monthly, verse-by-verse Bible study trusting you to accomplish your will through your word that every time it goes out it will not return empty but will accomplish the purposes for which it was sent but not just teaching the bible in a way where we're academic but in the power and the strength of the holy spirit that we would preach jesus christ and him crucified and risen again and ascended into heaven that jesus christ died for the forgiveness of our sins and there is no other way that a man must be saved There's no other name under heaven by which a man could be saved than the name Jesus Christ. And so steal our minds in these last days to be faithful to you and to your word, Lord, no matter what comes our way. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.